Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. When thousands of families fled Ukraine after Russia's invasion, for most, it marked the start of a long, uncertain journey. A lot of those refugees made it out safely with help, and some of them are in New Mexico. That's central to this week's episode. Chris and I are here in a pretty unique setting for the podcast today, which we normally record at the KRQE studio in Albuquerque. Today, we're talking to you from Diana Horak's Albuquerque home. We mentioned refugees coming to New Mexico. Diana helped her elderly mother and friend safely evacuate a hotspot in Ukraine months ago. And since then, she hasn't stopped helping. Now, just to give you an idea of why we say that we're sitting in Diana's home, we're surrounded by piles of donated items, suitcases full of things that she is taking to Ukraine. Um, It is a pretty remarkable site. And we'll put a lot of the pictures that we've taken in the web article associated with this episode here. But these are items that Diana and other folks have helped here in Albuquerque pack up and now are planning to deliver them in person by hand to refugees in Ukraine. Uh, Diana, thanks for talking to us. We understand your efforts to help Ukrainians have actually gotten a lot bigger since you brought your mom here to New Mexico in March, right? Yeah, thanks guys for coming out here today. And yeah, we weren't exactly um, planning on going back, but a series of events set things in motion. And once we got my mom here, we started to think about going, but it wasn't planned. However, somebody enabled my daughter and I to uh, go back. They purchased the tickets for us and uh, things kind of exploded from there on. People started bringing things, military things, baby things, um, things for the front, especially for the soldiers. Personally, um, a nephew and a friend of mine are fighting in the hottest spots that you can imagine. Everything that you see on the TV. The worst thing you can imagine on TV is where those two are now. And they need things. Sides, binoculars. Um, the day that we uh, figured out that we were funded to fly back, a NICU in Ukraine has contacted us and said, we're overrun. We're at four times capacity with the babies. At neonatal, there are so many refugee mamas that are having babies. They're having babies prematurely. They need everything starting from uh, surgical gowns, syringes, and you know, other things. So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring as much as possible. We currently have about 300 and, or about 400 pounds packed up. And today we're going to have another packing party here at the house, looking at a total of about... Um, Five, six hundred pounds of things to take back uh, with suitcases, 14 to 16 suitcases uh, that we will try to fly. That's, That's incredible. incredible. And yeah, you can see that, that we're surrounded by suitcases right now, all different shapes and sizes and eras of suitcase, some with floral print, some with the plastic edging. Yep. It's it's everything. It's, it's pretty, pretty cool to be able to see this. I wanted to to go back a little bit and and ask you to tell us a little bit about your family. You've been in Albuquerque now for it sounds like seventeen Albuquerque years. seventeen years in the states generally since ninety nine. And you are originally though from Ukraine, Absolutely. so you're Ukrainian. I as am well. Ukrainian. I bleed uh, blue and uh, yellow right now. 
and your mother, she was still living there up until this Russian invasion, it yes. sounds like. Yes. You ended up bringing her to New Mexico. Yes. The rest of my family is still there. Mom wasn't planning on coming at first because you never think that this is something that's going to happen. But when the invasion, the war... Not the military operation, like Putin says, when the war has begun um, and it was time for her to move because air raids gotten so bad that um, they had to locate bomb shelters and go there several times a night. And she's 82. It's not very uh, easy for her to be that mobile that quickly. So she ended up sleeping on the floor against the bearing wall. And that was time to get her out. Yeah. Uh, some friends that I knew, some friends that we support, whose ministries we support, they actually evacuate people to Western Ukraine. And from there, the refugee shelter is uh, the one that hosts them. And that's where we ended up going and picking them up. My brother is still in Ukraine. My nephews and nieces, my nephew's fighting, like I mentioned before. Just about every friend that I know is doing something. Wow. I think she makes the first Ukrainian refugee in New Mexico that I know of because we came so early. Tell us about that. Well, let's backtrack a little bit more. What brought you to New Mexico originally? Um, my husband. <laughs> yeah, he's always loved the Southwest. His dream was to live somewhere in New Mexico. And uh, we lived uh, in South Carolina for a couple of years and in Texas. And then he said, um, can we try to come here? I said, sure, let's go. So here we are, 17 years and counting. And what do you guys do? He's an IT uh, specialist. He works for the city of Albuquerque. I am a homeschooling mom. Pretty much, um, that's what I do. Yeah, and you have a son and a daughter who all live here. And Yes, my son's 17, my daughter is 14, and she's the one who would not hear a no to not going to Ukraine. She absolutely insisted, and she was a crucial part of that. Without her, we wouldn't be able to get two elderly ladies out and a 16-year-old cat. Wow. And about that journey, I mean, how was that? Was it smooth? Was it difficult? Obviously, you mentioned once the air raids got really bad, that's when you decided it was time to get your mom out of there. So how was the journey of getting your mom out of there? What was it like? Uh, for her, at first, she had to be evacuated from Kiev. Um, this is where we're from, to the outskirts. And she stayed in a safe location with her friend, uh, who's also el elderly, and the cat. At that point, my daughter and I were getting ready to fly, but we didn't know which country we were going to fly to. We knew they were going to be driven through Ukraine to Western Ukraine, but we didn't know which border they were going to end up, Poland or Slovakia or Hungary. So we pretty much just sat around and twiddled our thumbs. The journey for them uh, that usually should have taken about eight hours took two and a half days. They had to stop. They had to wait for the air raids to be uh, done. They had to look for safe locations. They had to spend the night somewhere. For her, it was extremely tough. Again, the age, um, the her life is sandwiched between two wars. She was born right before the World War II. And right now we have this. So once they got to Western Ukraine, the closer they got to Western Ukraine, my daughter and I got the indication which country to fly to. So we got a ticket from Saturday to Sunday to Hungary. We flew there. We had some luggage that we walked across the border. Um, we went to the refugee shelter. We spent the night there at the location where we unloaded all the supplies that we brought. And the next day, basically, we uh, got my mom, got her friend and the cat, and we walked back 
across the border into Hungary, where we were picked up by the volunteers on the Hungarian side and taken to Budapest and kind of tracked back to the United States. When you saw your mom and, and you know, saw her safe, what was that moment like? Um, we walked into the center and I called her on the phone and her back was to the door. So we're talking and she, she's been saying like, how are you? Where are you? And then somebody told her, turn around. And she turned around and that was uh, heartbreaking. She cried. This is the first time she cried since the war began. I haven't really cried yet, um, but yeah, I did a little bit, but not, not back then. And she didn't even recognize my daughter. She said, who is this? And my daughter's like, it's me. <laughs> So yeah, it was, it was incredible. How long had it been since you'd seen each other before that moment? Four years. Wow. Yeah. And wow. She, your mom's just crammed into a, a vehicle during that two day trek with other people, I imagine. Yeah. There were people, there was luggage. Um, I told them, you know, the government told everybody in Ukraine to have a ready bag and ready bag looks different for everybody. I told my mom just because it's difficult for her to walk. I said, you pack your documents and you pack nothing else. So she came out with a small handbag size, um, little, not a suitcase, say, say a purse. And that's all she had. So that's how we got her out. What has her health been like? You had mentioned you've got her back here and you've been able to, you know, get her in a good place, a better place than maybe she was even you know, making that journey, right? You, you mentioned her eyesight and whatnot, yeah. but what's her health been like? The truth is, Chris, when she first got back here, uh, I was thinking that she wasn't going to make it. She uh, lost 15 pounds. She slept 22 hours a day. She would stand up and her face turned blue. She'd passed out a couple of times because I think that when you're under the stress and the adrenaline is running, that's one dynamic. But when you finally realize that you're in a safe spot, that you no longer have to run, you no longer have a threat of the bombs falling in you, it just lets go. And it wasn't going really well for a while. She did regain um, a lot of her weight. She is feeling you know, much better. Her eyesight and you know, her hearing, they're not doing fantastically well. We discovered she does have cataracts. And uh, we will be looking into options to do a surgery somehow, somewhere, once we establish her status or Medicaid or some kind of insurance. Because when she got here, there was no status to get on. Thankfully, she had an unexpired U.S. visa. Mm. That is the one staple thing that allowed her to get in. And she already had that. Yes, because of her previous visits. This is not her first visit to the States. She's been here um, nine, ten times. How has that been navigating all those health needs? You mentioned your mom's 82 and, you know, she's not a citizen here. Has it been difficult to just navigate? Incredibly. First of all, because we don't even know exactly where to start. Where do you go? Who do you call? Who do you consult with? So uh, the first thing we did, she needed glasses. So we took her to eyeglass world and uh, people have just been incredible there. They said they found out you know, who she is, where she's from and said, gosh, we're going to waive all, you know, all the fees. So we're going to take care of her. And they did. And it was great. Uh, she's not established with anything medical, any doctors. So we have spoken to somebody, a legal representative, I think of New Mexico family law that work pro bono cases. We spoke to them yesterday and explained the situation and they said that they're going to speak to somebody and we will hopefully hear back and if it's a possibility to help her that way. 
uh, they will. So that would be fantastic. I wanted to transition uh, a little bit, you know, the reason why we sort of came together, um, our anchor reporter, uh, Jessica Garate, she interviewed you back in March. And it sounds like since then, since sharing your story, others have seen that. What has happened since that story aired about, you know, you and your life and your family? It sounds like, yeah, you've gotten some help. Yeah, this is my favorite part because uh, things that Jessica set in motion have been bordering on nothing short of miraculous about how people pulled together. Uh, specifically, uh, what we were talking about with you guys is that um, the, the night that Jessica ran the story, there was one person, it's a lady, and um, she told me that she doesn't generally watch the news a whole lot. She very rarely turns the TV on at 10 p.m. at night, and she almost never watches Channel 13. We'll have to change that, but that's <laughs> <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> no, it's you know nothing personal. It's just sure. I don't think she was, you know, she's a news person generally. But anyway, that night, uh, this is everything that happened. She saw that little story, and from there on, she uh, has become... You know, if I were to use a biblical reference, I would say she has become a Joshua and an Aaron to a Moses. Because when you get tired and you get tired, we get tired. You hit the wall mentally, you hit the wall physically, and you have people who come behind you and they raise your hands up. They help you. They uh, put the wings on your back. She has become um, the driving force in this, um, in this thing that's happening, plus other people. People have been stopping by the house, dropping off military stuff. Um, the doorbell rings several times a day. We had to put a note out for all the mail carriers. Sorry, guys, we're not hoarding. We're really taking stuff to Ukraine. But this has exploded. The people have pulled together. And that is incredible because you feel like you matter. Ukraine has put itself on a map very quickly for reasons none of us wanted. But here we are and people care and New Mexico's helping. Wow. And so she is funding a lot of the stuff that you're now taking. Um, I wanted to just give people a little bit of insight. Your next trip to Ukraine, you plan on hand delivering 400 to 600 pounds of supplies. We know that you mentioned there's a NICU that's overrun with moms and babies. They've requested specific supplies. You mentioned to us before the interview that it actually it's actually cheaper to fly and hand deliver these things in person rather than pay shipping and just, you know, hope on a prayer that they get there. So that woman who reached out has funded a lot of these things in your airline tickets? Absolutely. Yeah, she did. She gave us a blanket permission to do what we want, when we want, how we want, even before we were planning to fly back. She walked in, she said, are your daughter and you thinking of going back? I said, well, that would be good, but, uh, you know, we just got home. Mom just has begun to recuperate. And she said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the money. And I said, well, um, we don't have any plans. She said, I don't care. When you go, this is for then. The following day after that happened, the NICU has gotten in touch with the refugee center there. And that uh, those are the people that I've known for 15 years. And re mm -hmm. they reached out to me and they said, is there anything that you guys can do to help with the NICU to bring the supplies? 
So you're like a point person now that people are coming to. And a mule. <laughs> and we carry that term with every honor that can possibly be imagined. We're not the first ones. We're not the last ones. One of the guys from Minnesota reached out to me and said, can I go and volunteer for a month? I said, sure. So we muled him out there. He's there right now. We're next. And besides my daughter and myself, there will be two more people joining me because otherwise we physically cannot, um, we cannot handle 14 to 16 suitcases ourselves. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And you mentioned it is cheaper to take them in person than to ship. Why is that? Well, funny enough, first of all, you cannot ship anything to Ukraine. Mm. There is no fly zone over Ukraine. So at first to buy things somewhere, then to pack them here, then to pay for the container, then to fly the container to any of the bordering countries there, then to find a way to de, um, what's the word for it? Um, decustomize it, I think, when you have to pay all the taxes there in Hungary or in Poland, then get it out, then find the way to get across the border into the correct location. Just like you mentioned, Gabrielle, you never know if it's going to end up there at all or if it's going to end up in the correct hands. This is a specific hospital with specific needs and specific people that are asking for things that um, this is what we need. We need babies need help. Soldiers need help. Much cheaper to actually physically fly it, deliver it by hand, especially with the fact that some airlines, not many, but some airlines honor an agreement called a humanitarian ticket. They allow you three checked-in bags for free per traveler. If that is honored, our problem's going to be much easier. But if it's not here in New Mexico, when we, when my daughter and I flew the first time, we did not have humanitarian tickets. And I think we flew Delta KLM and we walked up to the counter and we had five or six bags with us. And the guy just said, what were you guys doing? Why do you have the Ukrainian flags on it? And we said, okay, this is what we do. And he waived all the fees. So every little bit of that just flew free. And this is really what we're kind of hoping that will happen this time because it's critical. You mentioned some of those challenges of making these supply runs, so to speak, to a, to a war-torn country. What happens when you get there on the ground? And what are the kind of challenges you face then from, say, getting to the airport out to uh, the places that actually are receiving and getting these supplies? The first time we went, it was rougher. We didn't know exactly where we were going to. We weren't sure how we're going to get to the border. It's a little scary. Okay, I have to walk across the border, drag the suitcases, go through five or six checkpoints. Um, who's going to meet us? Where are we going to be? So the first time it was a little more difficult, but we figured it out. And it wasn't that bad of a run, I would say, except probably one time when in the middle of the night, the air raid begins. And we know that there are no bomb shelters around. So I look at my daughter and she kind of looks at me and we go, well, do we go back to sleep? I mean, what do we do? We were staying at the location of that uh, pastor's house who runs the 500 refugee center. It's his house with 27 people that have lived there for the last 80 days. And in the morning, he just comes out and he goes, uh, so you guys heard an air raid? We go, yeah, we sure did. He goes, yeah, I did too. This time it has intensified. Um, the bombings over Western Ukraine have begun closer to the location where we're going. I'm not going to mention the location, but it's not 
too far from Lviv. And you know that Lviv has been bombed at this point uh, with casualties. So um, uh, it's going to be fun. Four of you, you mentioned, are making this trip. Your mom's staying here with your husband, but you're taking with you your 14-year-old daughter to help. You said she would not take no for an answer, and this isn't her first trip. Just tell me about that. What's it like having your daughter there with you, I imagine? I imagine it's helpful, but maybe a little bit also stressful. Uh, it's incredible. It's both. Um, she would not, like you said, she would not take no for an answer. For the first trip, she was partially funding herself. She, uh, because two years ago, before COVID started, we were supposed to take a group to Ukraine for a little uh, humanitarian trip. So she was well-funded and she said, this is the most important thing right now. Uh, use my money. It, we need to get grandma out. It's more important than anything else. So we did. It was, I'm not sure if I am too crazy of a mom or my daughter is too stubborn of a daughter, but uh, it worked out really well. There was no way I could have made the trip without her. And uh, they wanted to keep her there because the house where we're staying has 17 kids. Uh, they asked that she stays and helps. And I considered it for a hot minute. Oh, God. Unfortunately, we realized I did not bring enough of her heart meds with her. And I said, no, no, honey, not this time. So, yeah, uh, it was a little iffy. I understood that it was critical for her. And it's a good thing that she went because our kids need to be able to see and have compassion and have some kind of a say and some kind of a do in everything that's going on. Wow. You know, you get on the ground and you're faced with a lot of as you had mentioned, logistical challenges, but ones that you are now aware of, do you think it's still going to be the same? You had mentioned that things have started to change, you know, that the bombings have moved further west in Ukraine. Do you think you'll still have that same kind of experience that the one that you have in your mind from your last trip? Well, hopefully this one is going to be easier because this time what we're looking at is the team from Ukraine the receiving end, will most likely be able to send a van to cross the border for us from Ukraine into Hungary and pick us up because otherwise, I mean, who's going to walk 16 suitcases across the border or the train? It's, it's really difficult. So this part of logistics is going to be okay, most likely. The difficult part of the logistics is getting the things that we have to deliver to uh, what we call spot zero, hotspots, because um, there is no going there. You, you can't just show up and say, hey guys, this is what we bring. However, people need things there critically and we will be looking out for ways how to do it. There are some dedicated people and some really um, insanely amazing drivers that will go as close as they can. So maybe we will be looking at it. I am not saying that I'm gonna go because um, it is not wise having a child. So we will try to use the drivers mm -hmm. or whatever other means that are necessary. You have men that are part of your family fighting for Ukraine there. Yes. Yes. My, um, I, I found out last week that my, um, my nephew is, um, unit commander and, um, I can't mention the location where he is, but again, imagine the most horrible thing you see on the news currently. And this is where he is. 
communication is not very good. They do not have internet. They do not uh, often have phone connection either. Once in a while when they climb a, a building and they're on the roof of a building, they will catch something and are able to send a message or two. And he's asking for specific things like, hey, you know, we need sights. We need uh, night vision optics. Um, so we, we understand that I don't know exactly who he is. He's a unit commander, but I don't know if he is an, in reconnaissance or if he's a sniper. What is the general sense that maybe you get from the folks that are accepting this help? Let me tell you a story from our first trip. The first trip, we didn't have a whole lot of medical. Well, we did have. We had some medical stuff like blood stoppers and tourniquets and things like that. But people have also supplied us with things like, you know, socks and thermal underwear. And the first time we went was um, middle of uh, March. So it was pretty cold still. When we got to the location where we were able to unpack everything, a soldier who brought his nine months pregnant wife to the shelter to leave her there walks in and he sees all these supplies just spread on the floor. And the first question is, do you guys have any thermal underwear? <laughs> and we go, yeah, we do. He goes, do you think I could have one? The feeling that you have, you know, guys, there are defining moments in every story that you have. There are defining moments in this war when you bring a soldier, Long Jones, when you bring somebody a hairbrush, somebody specifically said, could you please bring me a hairbrush? Um, it rattles you. You realize the enormity of a pressure that they go through, the enormity of gratitude, uh, everything. Everything is being used. Today, I have spoken to uh, a friend of mine who runs, uh, his name's Joel Brown. He runs Living Water Ministry there in Western Ukraine. He says, do you guys um, have any bulletproof vests? Two just arrived, but I weren't sure that they were designated or not. So I had to check and they said, if they're undesignated, can I take them? Because I need to pass them on to such and such. People just, they're, they're grateful. They're somber. They use everything that is being sent. And um, I, I don't know how to tell you guys. I mean, hey, you know, if one of you wants to go and see, I'll take one of you. Yeah. That, that would be a pretty incredible experience for yeah, sure. I, you know, one of the earlier conversations that Chris and I had with somebody, a member of team Rubicon who was going there as a doctor to help was explaining that a lot of the Ukrainian refugees were kind of just staying there because they wanted to see, will I get to go home? Is that still the case for a lot of the families that you see in these camps? And then the men that you talk about, are they there by choice still trying to defend or are some of them like still being forced to fight? Um, absolutely. Families are staying there because um, in the words of my best friend who had to evacuate to Austria, she did it in the very last possible moment when the bombs were falling on Lviv. She said, gosh, my whole entire life, I dreamed of going and living in another country. And now I'm a bigger patriot than I thought I was. Uh, people don't want to leave. People want to go home. Kids um, that are spread out through Europe right now, they want to go home. Kids are inside in Western Ukraine and other parts. Everybody wants to go home. So people wait. Unless there is absolutely no other choice for them, they are staying. Men are fighting. Personally, I don't know any men right now who are not doing something. I'm sure they're you know, different cases, but all my friends, and I'm honored to say so, everybody does something. 
Wow. We know the news cycle, you know, the industry that Chris and I work in is constantly shifting and a humanitarian crisis like this may be out of sight, out of mind for a lot of folks who live here in New Mexico and other parts of, you know, the U.S. who don't know anyone being directly impacted like you do. Is there anything else that you want people to know or want folks to keep in mind about Ukraine? Well, yeah, you're right. It's out of mind, out of sight. And if it's something that runs for a week, everybody's excited and wants to help. Um, and when the day count is going, day 70, 75, 79, it becomes a backstory. But those are people. Those are kids. And the way we feel, it's not just about Ukraine, guys. Uh, Ukraine is fighting Russia on behalf of the whole world while Russia is fighting the whole world in Ukraine, if you want to put it that way. And that's what it feels like, and we stand. And what I want people to know is that everything that you have done, everybody that everybody have, um, has done, and specifically what people of New Mexico have done to support myself and my team and other people who are arriving here, has been an incredible support for us mentally and um it does our hearts good because realistically you don't know who is next or what is next. And if this war is not over, if Russia is not done, what prevents him from coming and taking Alaska? Um, what prevents anybody coming into your own backyard? And then you will be the one looking for somebody else to care. So it goes both ways. Yeah, I, th I think that's a it's an important reminder. I think especially to a lot of people in America, you you grow up in a safe environment when you consider the geopolitical world, but that doesn't always mean that everything will always stay the same. I and mean, you can certainly see the change that has happened over the last several decades in how Ukraine has been accosted by its neighbor now to the point where being invaded by its neighbor um, and, and people's lives just all of a sudden one day are uprooted and now have to deal with this. Taking long, long johns for granted, yeah. if you will. Yeah, if you will. And um, actually, you know, because we are a strategic point, New Mexico is a strategic point. Los Alamos, Sandia Labs, the base, we're right here. I have to think like an American Ukrainian. I don't want the bombs falling here anymore than I want the bombs falling in Ukraine. So I do understand the reluctance of some people to get involved. Oh, you know, we're, we don't want to fund the war. You know, Yeah, I don't want American boys dying anymore than I want Ukrainian boys dying. But something somehow needs to be done because if you do not stop evil, you conspire with it. Thank you so much, Diana, for allowing us into your home and sharing your story. We think it's an important story to share, and we'll be sure to follow up with you when you make the next trip to the Sunport here in Albuquerque and to all those families in need in Ukraine. Chris and I will have another episode for you next week. In the meantime, if you have a story idea, feedback, questions, concerns, you can always reach out. I'm at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com 
chrismckeetv.com on email. And then you can also get me on Twitter at chrismckeetv. We also, just as a reminder, we're going to post some of the images, you know, related to the, the stuff that is being taken to Ukraine. We'll post that in the web article for this episode. If you just go to our website, krqe.com slash podcasts, you can find it there. We appreciate you listening. Mm-hmm.